Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. We got a new Southwest Fire Academy website that's going to be launched soon. So it's going to be way easier to navigate and we'll have some really great content on there. And Andrew Broussard is helping out with our social media now. We'll be posting much more frequently with very dynamic posts with what we're doing. And anyone that follows any of Broussard's pages knows how amazing the content that's shared. So that's going to be great. Actually meeting with Brass tomorrow to come up with some new dates for NFPA and Beyond the Academy courses. We'll be adding to the SFA calendar this year. Advanced Forceful Entry, Machine Rescue, and some others. We have an EMR and first responder course starting April 9th with Pulse Point at the Southwest Fire Academy campus. And anyone who is first responder certified can jump in at the end of the class and get EMR certified. So that's an option. Pump ops starting April 11th to the 14th at SFA. Firefighter survival May 15th to 19th. And then we have the trench rescue starting June 5th to 9th with Mike Tazarski and his special operations consulting Canada instructors. SFA. He wanted me to mention he has his master rigor qualifications for the chiefs that are looking for that. So that's going to be a great course. And that's all for me. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 63 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. We could have an endless debate over the definition of what constitutes hard. There are a lot of vague and dismissive things that are said on the topics, such as there's always someone that has it worse than you. Look for the silver lining. Everything happens for a reason, or whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But no amount of perspective on severity or validity changes your personal reality at any given moment. You are faced with what you are faced with. You are experiencing that thing or a litany of things in the way that you are. And over whatever internal or external time frame that has been imposed on you, it needs to be survived if you are going to. That's it. Just stay in it and fight to get more wins than losses over time. This is what Goggins means when he tells you to stay hard. You don't have to have a great attitude about it and the root problem where problems may not be solved. But take the steps you can towards it or through it and chalk up another time you were the type of person that acted in the face of something difficult. Show yourself that you can. Remind yourself of the times you have before and then show yourself again. My guest this episode is a tremendous resource of hope and possibility in the face of adversity. Yet another powerful example of navigating difficulty as an imperfect human in a complex world. It's a pleasure to bring you Ricky Nuttall. So I think when the fire service and even outside the fire service with the general population, when people were trying to put together education for people on mental health issues, mental illness, and it makes sense. The great place to start was to let's give them signs and symptoms of what that looks like or feels like, because if you can't recognize what's going on with you, then how can you address it? And I remember years and years ago, basically just a list of signs and symptoms on an eight and a half sheet of paper and in black and white. And it was really hard to sort of put them in context or know how severe one was compared to the other. 
And so fast forward, another great step was taken to, and I don't know if this is probably common on your side of the pond too, but those signs and symptoms were then put in categories or colors, green, yellow, orange, and red. So you could sort of look in that category and see what might be going on with you and know where you stand and when you maybe you should be reaching out to get help. So green being you're not in the absence of all problems and stress in your life, but you've your coping mechanisms and your lifestyle and that is helping you mitigate that and prevent it. And, and then as you creep towards maybe a diagnosable mental illness, you're in the red, so yellow and orange. And I think there's value in that too. Having that knowledge in my head and, and experience and my own experience and then watching some of your content and specifically in one of the interviews, I remember you saying, and you, you might have said this a number of times, is it wasn't until retrospect, looking back on what your experience was, that you actually realized what you were going through, how serious it was. So that really jumped out at me because I think and this is a pivotal piece, right? If we can't recognize what's going on with us in the moment, how are we going to address it? And we get too far down the road and maybe things are really hard and it's really hard to unpack. So where I'd love for us to start out with is it's such a nuanced personal experience thing when you're living life in real time to recognize what your normal is and then when it's abnormal, especially if you have an unhealthy lifestyle already, how do you know what shittier feels like when you already feel shitty, right? And then how do you tie that to the incident or incidents and your mental illness or mental problems you're having? So maybe let's start there. And, and I guess my question is, and for us, is how do we really in real time as humans and as firefighters recognize or is our only way to understand is to go through it and look back on it. The key for any of this really in essence is education. And personally, I believe that PTSD is the most common mental health illness for emergency service workers leading into or, or accompanied by depression. And I think that part of our training protocols should be to actually have an entire section on that so that we are aware of what can happen how serious it can get. So we are aware of the feelings associated with mental, we have poor mental health. I talk a lot about feelings because feelings are something that transcend situations and transcend outcomes. Everyone knows what sad feels like. Everybody knows what angry feels like. What causes those feelings may be a multitude of different things. But ultimately, we can all resonate with that feeling and we just associate what's caused it in us with the other person. So for me, when I felt angry all the time, it was because I was being affronted by the people around me. I felt like everyone had turned against me. Whereas had I had any kind of training to understand that constant, continuous and disproportionate levels of anger in daily life is a sign and symptom of PTSD, I would have immediately gone, wow, I'm struggling. Oh, there's something wrong here. And I would have been able to reach out at the earliest stage. It would also have given me an opportunity that once I've learned that, to come home to my partner and say to my partner, oh, we learned about PTSD today. Did you know about this? Did you know what this is? Did you know that it can be compounded? A lot of people I speak to talk about CPTSD, you know, complex PTSD. And my understanding, loose understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that's kind of like a, a, a compounding phases of, of PTSD. So for me, it's childhood trauma that's unresolved and not been processed properly is then compounded with new traumas as I've become older and gone through seeing things within the fire service. And some of those things will resonate back to childhood, which brings that stuff in. And to my mind, I ended up with a brain absolutely filled with very confusing levels of anger without really knowing why or what. And the problem there is the only way out of it from that point is if somebody else in your life 
has gone through it, experiences it, has experienced it, or has learnt about it, or to do it retrospectively like I had to. Because I was unlucky that despite having a father that was in the armed forces, he was in the RIMI in the British military. He had active combat in Northern Ireland in the Ireland conflict. But other than that, it was only a brief few years and he didn't experience anything to an extent that he was affected long term. So he's never experienced PTSD either. So as far as I was concerned, everyone around me is pissed off at me. I'm really angry because everyone's turning their backs on me. I'm also, I guess, retrospectively, I was angry because I was failing at so many things that I used to be good at. I was failing at everyday life. If you want to avoid all of that, the key has to be in education, and that has to be at the earliest stage. The first thing that happens in a London Fire Brigade when you start your training is you're giving a first aid course, you have to pass that, and you're spoken to by the Fire Brigade's union and the pension people to make sure that the, the groundwork, the basics are set up. As far as I'm concerned, trauma care, self-care should be involved in that. When we do the first aid, it's not just physical. First aid is mental as well. That's why we now have mental health first aiders. So why not do a week or two days or however long the course needs to be, but give us as trainee firefighters, trainee police officers, trainee ambulance workers and staff, give us the training and the information and education that we need to prevent ourselves from going down this dark rabbit hole that for a lot of emergency service workers actually does end in suicide. Would you agree as well that most of this education and the cultural thought within the service about PTS, PTSD, mental health issues, is that members come into this job as a blank slate. We're treated as blank slates. Nothing's happened prior. You did mention childhood trauma, so that's why I'm going down this, this road here. And then the job then is the cause. This is a key point too, because you're living your life in real time. What you experience every day is normal. You may already be kind of an angry person. You might already have unhealthy coping mechanisms. You might already have underlying generalized anxiety or low-level depression or high-functioning depression and not know it because that's just your normal and you think that's just the way life is. You haven't ever known different. So then you get on the job and obviously the job is part of the cause because it adds on top. It exacerbates that problem. But people are very quick to say, well, it was that incident or it's these incidences or it's only the job as opposed to... I guess trying to get themselves together, get a proper baseline, heal themselves as well as possible so you come into the job healed. I guess we're never going to be fully 100% healed, but I guess what I would like to see us get to is a place where we're as healthy as we can possibly be day one. So then we are better suited to understand when things happen on the job, when those are the cause, as opposed to trying to pin it to the job itself and not dealing with the underlying issues that were always there. The first point for me would be to say that Blame is a large part, or certainly was for me, of why you end up somewhere. And the people we blame last are ourselves. We will blame absolutely everybody around us for everything that is going wrong in our lives when we are struggling without looking at ourselves first. It's very rare that you will. I always do now because I've been through what I've been through and I've come out the other side. But the easiest person to blame or, or body to blame in all of this, in our roles, is our employer. Is so therefore we will look at the incident that was the catalyst. But quite often that is the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a whole load going on before that. And my second point would be when it comes to mental health, I now realize that mental health is much like going to the gym. You don't wait until you're obese and you've had two heart attacks 
and you you can't walk up a flight of stairs without nearly dying before you get yourself to the gym unless you're an idiot. What you do is you say, right, I have started to see some signs that I'm gaining weight, so I'm going to go on a bit of a diet, a bit of a healthy eating plan. I've started to recognize signs that as I'm getting older, I'm struggling a bit more with this or that. So what I'm going to do is look at what I can do to slow down the physical deterioration in my body. And we should be doing the same thing with our mental health. And if we're taught that at a young age, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but I know in the US, it's something that always used to baffle me. And now I totally get it. In all of the sitcoms and programs, you always hear people talking about their therapist. I'm going to go and see my therapist. My therapist have a field day with this, yada, yada. And I used to think, God, the whole of America's seen therapists. Like, how messed up is that country? And now, genuinely, I get it. It's maintenance. It's the gym for your brain. You've got to do it. And if we did that here, like you suggested, we would be entering our roles as firefighters or police officers, whatever. Maybe not a blank slate, maybe not completely fixed, but we'd certainly be better placed to have dealt with loads of stuff previous, if there was stuff, and to cope with stuff as it happens. For me, it was an education. Therapy was an education, which is the word I'm probably going to come back to so many times during this talk, because as you go through stuff, you learn. That's what we do as humans. A one-year-old doesn't read a book to learn how to speak. They listen and see what's going on around them, and that's how they pick this stuff up. That's how I learned as much as I did about poor mental health. Because the only source of information I had was the mistakes that I was making on a daily basis and the people's reactions to them. So if we can avoid that and we can educate ourselves through going to therapy, seeing a counsellor, seeing a therapist, educating ourselves at every stage, you know, even in school, why isn't it in schools? What's wrong with it being a part of the national curriculum over here? It, it should be in schools. Because more and more children are suffering with poor mental health due to, I guess, the sort of rise of social media particularly is putting kids into situations where instead of knocking on each other's front doors and going out to kick a football about they're playing FIFA online with headsets on in isolation in their bedrooms they're losing that social interaction and with that faceless society which is seemingly more and more what it is these days it's so easy to bully each other it's so easy to be nasty to each other when there are no consequences because no one knows who you are. You don't have to use your real name. You don't have to have your face out there. You can say what you want. It seems to be a quagmire now for deterioration in mental health. Yeah, where road rage is a semi-anonymous outburst where when you remove that completely, it's completely anonymous. So we have this piece where we've talked about you might have a lot going on that you don't even know because it's been your normal before you came in the service. Now you have the job and the job itself obviously is going to add on to that. And I think also the missing piece that people aren't aware of or think of is you're also living your life in real time also outside of the service. So you're still dealing with all of the relationships and financial issues and, and maybe health issues within yourself, within other family members. That's all happening in real time too. So I guess that's where I think people really get bogged down as to nailing down what is the cause as we're really focused on what the cause is and what the problem is. And I think that's a very first responder way to approach things like let me name it let me find out what the problem is and then we directly fix that one thing where it gets kind of messy because how do you pull this all apart i came up with an idea about this using something that we would all have learned in our respective fire services we have the triangle of fire right and so you've got your heat your fuel and oxygen of course it is yeah you've got your heat your fuel and your oxygen and you remove any one of them the fire can't survive i was thinking about this in terms of mental health what would the three be? 
And I decided that it's environments. So it's your work life, your home life, and your financial life. And if any one of those is bad, if you're broke because you're not earning enough money, but your home life is good and your work life is good, okay, you, you can get through that. It might be stressful, but you get through it. If your work life is rubbish, but your financial life and your home life is good, then all you've got to do is get through each day. You can get home to a, a loving family, a nice home. You can afford holidays. You can drive a nice car. There's enough there. If two of those things are bad, suddenly now you've only got work that's good. You're poor and your home life's terrible. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Life becomes very, very hard. Or the other way around, if your home life is rubbish and your work life is rubbish, it doesn't matter how much money you've got. Life is very, very hard. And if all three are rubbish, which is where I got to, that's suicide central. You're in that frame there where you've got nowhere to go. You've got no salvation. There's nothing left that's good. Everything is bad. And there's very little, I know it sounds really morbid, but there's very little to live for if you get to that point. And that made me realize that trying to isolate what caused it is largely irrelevant. What we need to focus on, I believe, is what's affected by it. What's affected by where you're at and then fix what's affected rather than worry about what caused it because what caused it ultimately gives you a starting point that doesn't matter. And I guess understanding that regardless of what the cause is, if you were addressing it with lifestyle and with speaking to people or healthy coping mechanisms, things are going to get better regardless of what the cause was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And really thinking about that triangle or also how I've heard it framed as pillars maybe the work life is good and that's the one thing you have and it's you're holding on to it and you're like, well, I still love coming to work and I still love seeing my colleagues at work. Work's great. You're really putting a lot of weight on that one thing. And the one minute that falls apart, you're right. You're very, very close to going down that bad alley. And as I said, I don't believe you have to reach a rock bottom in order to, to heal. I know that is the case for a lot of people because for a lot of people that tends to be the catalyst to make them want to for me that day when i was sitting on the floor in floods of tears in a dark house on my own and just thought i cannot live like this and it wasn't i can't live like this what can i change to improve my situation it was a simple case of i cannot see a way in my life in my future that this sadness that is weighing me down that is destroying me from inside is ever ever going to go away which means I'm going to have to live with this sadness for the rest of my life. If that's a reality, I would rather not live the rest of my life. And it was a very simple process. And the scary thing for me was that it wasn't about whether I felt loved or whether I felt valued or whether I felt I had someone to talk to because I knew I had all of those things in my life. I was loved. I did value myself. I did feel valued. I had plenty of people to talk to. I had loads of support. And despite that, I still wanted to, to kill myself. And it was because of how bad I felt inside. That internal pain was what needed to be addressed. That's a very key point. I think it's a common refrain we hear from people when we've lost somebody to suicide is they had everything. From the outside, it seems like they had everything. Everything was fine. Why did they leave? To overlay that also, I've heard it framed very beautifully for, say, depression and suicide, that it's not that people don't want to live it's not that they don't want to continue to live, and you framed it really well right there, is to say that I just don't want to live like this. If this is the way it's always going to be, I can't live like this. It doesn't mean I, I don't want to live. If we could remove that, whatever the this is, all that feeling, then people would obviously still want to be here. 
the biggest difference, I suppose, to my understanding, between actually t- taking or attempting to take your own life, which uh, thankfully I never did, and not, was the knowledge that I, that support was there if I choose to take it. So the pain was what I want to get rid of. But I was very fortunate in that I, I had lots of people around me, despite my relationship crumbling around me and my son being scared of me, my immediate family that I lived with was not much of a support mechanism at this point. And that's through no fault of their own. My son was three and my girlfriend at the time also had zero knowledge of PTSD and zero understanding of what was going on. To her mind, I've gone to work a man that she loved and I've come home an absolute asshole. And it was that simple. And she tolerated my behaviors for a while but ultimately she had to choose between the safety of her son and the her son's well-being and me and every mother on the planet is going to choose their son they're never going to choose the partner so i was very lucky that i had a dad and a mum that i knew i could call that i'm close with that i'm open with and i had friends in the fire service that thankfully due to a, a change in the culture in in the 18 years i've been in meant that they are open enough to talk about feelings and to talk about problems. And so I had people that I could talk to, which meant if I was going to choose a route of recovery, there was a way I could do it. And some people aren't that lucky. Some people don't have that route out. They might feel like I did, but they might look around and go, well, who is going to help me? Who's there? And if I didn't have anyone, who knows if we'd be having this conversation? Yeah, I recently injured my chest. And of course, immediately when it happened, I knew something significant happened. I was able to see it physically, feel it physically. And immediately my thought was to tell people, head to the hospital, start getting assessed. I already, without knowing the exact process, I knew exactly what to do and get involved in the process. And my trajectory to healing is going to be very, very good. And I'll be back to normal very quickly, where the awareness of recognizing things that are slowly creeping up on you from a mental health aspect especially if you haven't, I guess, taken time to become self-aware of yourself. I, don't, I think a lot of people aren't observant of themselves in life. They're very much just experiencing it and reacting to whatever's happening as opposed to being introspective and knowing, really knowing who they are and why they are the way they are so that they can recognize slight differences and changes as they occur. The huge difference between physical and mental well-being to start with is massive. Like you said, it's an instinct. You hurt yourself physically. You go straight to the GP, the doctors. There's a load of different avenues. You might have a friend who's medically trained to whatever degree, and you think, I don't want to go to the hospital. You'll phone them up. Oh, I've got this lump on the outside of my knee. Did you hit it on anything? Yeah, it's just swelling. Don't worry. But we know what to do. We reach out, and we'll we'll ask. I mean, I don't know what it's like over there, but we'll ask strangers. Like over here, like if you're in a pub, and someone goes, oh, yeah, I'm a doctor, you'll be like, oh, can you have a look at this for us? Like, We'll whip an arm out. We're so ready to do it. But with anything to do with our brains, anything to do with our minds, we're so reluctant and we're so coy and shy because it feels weak. And we worry that other people may see it as weak if we can't cope with something. It's always been ingrained in me from a young age. You have to cope. You have to cope with what life throws at you. You have to cope with this. You should be able to cope with that. Who's setting these parameters? Who's setting the levels? Who's making these decisions? We will invest money in our physical well-being to an extent. Very few people want to invest money in their mental health. If you say to someone, you could probably do with some counselling. I said it to an elderly woman not long ago at a little tea thing, tea morning that I was 
helping out at. She lost her husband a year and a half ago, and she, you could, I could see the sadness in her face. She's still struggling with it. And I said to her, have you had any bereavement counselling? And she was like, oh, no. I said, well, why don't you get some? Why don't you at least look into it? Because if it doesn't help, you're in the same position you're in now. If it does help, you're better off. And she said, oh, it's very expensive. And it made me realise that, say it's £30 an hour, which would be cheap. I think it's more like 80 over here, about £80 an hour to see a, a decent sort of counsellor. But the men that are saying, and I, and I say men because it is mostly men that would be reluctant to do it. The men that, as I was, don't want to spend £80 a week on an hour's worth of counselling will happily spend £100 a week on cocaine to self-medicate or £150 every couple of days on going out and getting absolutely smashed because that's the way we're coping. And you add that up, you're spending £800 a month on drugs and alcohol to self-medicate instead of £400 a month on something that's actually going to take you a step closer. I tell people now when I met with this sort of reluctance to fork out the money for the gym or for a personal trainer or for anything to do with their mental health. I tell them that you are the, the most important project you will ever work on. You are the most important person in your life. There's a reason that when you're in an aeroplane and those oxygen masks come down, you are told to put your one on first. Because if you don't, you are useless to everybody else on that plane. We have to fix ourselves first. Don't worry about holidays for the kids. Don't worry about paying the mortgage even. We have to worry about our ability to function in normal everyday life. And if we have to pay for that, we should be happy to. We should look forward to paying for it because it means we will heal. It means we will get better and it means we will survive. Is the double edge of the self-medicating and where people are getting tripped up and maybe where they fool themselves is with the cocaine, with the alcohol, you're also getting the massive, you're getting a dopamine kickback, right? So very often people link to doing the drugs or the alcohol as I enjoy it. Well, I enjoy that. They don't link it to I'm doing it to cope. I'm doing it because things are hard and it makes me feel better. It's just like, I like the way it feels. It just makes me feel good. So it becomes a lifestyle thing where they really hold on to that and don't want to let it go. Whereas if they let it go, they're not going to feel good. It's, it's their, their dopamine system may be working against them. Whereas if they could frame it as, if you go down these other more healthier routes, you'll get just as much of a dopamine kickback. It'll be just as much a good thing that you want to do that feels good for you as this bad thing. But people are reluctant to let go of that experience. If I said to you, it's a really nice feeling if I'm not smashing my head against a brick wall, you'd go, well, yeah, obviously. If I then said to you, so what I do is each morning I smash my head against a brick wall for five minutes so that when I stop, it feels good. You'd say, you're insane. That's ridiculous. But that is effectively what we do with self-medication through drugs and alcohol. We are punishing ourselves but we're getting, we're getting the, the freedom part and the feel-good part before the punishment. It's like the other way around from banging your head on a brick wall. It's like someone tells you it feels nice, but afterwards you're going to have to hit your head against the wall a few times. And that's the problem because we haven't got to do the hard work first. I think that's why because we will chalk the bad feeling, the come down, the hangover. We'll chalk that up to, oh, it's just because of, of the, the amount of fun I had last night. We start associating bad feelings afterwards in direct relation to how much fun we've had so so therefore well in order for me to have fun i've got to have that bit so that's okay it's almost justifying the bad feeling when in actual fact if you are mentally well not taking drugs not drinking excessively every day can be fun 
There is no come down. There is no bad part. Every day can be fun. And I think we forget that. I think, and I think it's easy to forget, especially in our jobs, because you can be having a fun day one minute and you can be pulling a, a dead child out from underneath a car the next. And the problem with that is it certainly has given me a bit of a throwaway attitude towards life and death. It gives you a barometer for what a bad day looks like. It's very, very skewed. Someone will say to me, like, oh, I've had an awful day today. What happened? Oh, a kid shouted at me in the playground at 2 p.m. and just ruined my day. And I think, are you being serious? Like, a, you're a teacher and a kid shouted at you and that's, that's your bad day. Give me that every day. My bad day was I made a mistake putting some water into a window and caused steam burns to a colleague that's now been taken to hospital and will be off work for two months. That's a bad day. That's a hell of a fuck up. Not that I've done that, by the way, I hasten to add for anyone listening, I am actually a good firefighter. These things happen. And this is a problem with, with the drugs and alcohol. It, uh, what's acceptable, uh, what's normal, is so skewed compared to a lot of other people. Just to touch back on what you were saying about gratification, I guess, versus pain. Like We're very much aware of what delayed gratification is, but I guess because of how many things we have access to now at our fingertips that can give us good feelings immediately and consistently, we'd rather have gratification with delayed pain consistently than having maybe some pain up front to deal with something and delay the gratification that's going to last consistently. A really simple analogy for this is something I do regularly. I order things from Amazon like many people in the world. And if I'm ordering multiple items, I will get a message when I go to checkout online and it will say, do you want to move this next day delivery, that next day delivery to in two days time to save on packaging? And we'll send it all out in one go. No, no, I do not. I want all of my stuff as quickly as it can get here, which then means three different delivery days, three different packages, three lots of cardboard and stuff. Guess what? I absolutely hate doing more than anything in the world. Dealing with box after box, having to break them down, fold them up, fit them in a recycling bin. It drives me mental. And yet I won't delay the delivery of an item to save myself that because I haven't had to do that bit yet. And for me, it's exactly the same thing. We make our lives harder than it needs to be for that instant gratification, that instant feel good. It makes me think of a uh, Simpsons episode. I think it's when Homer's drinking vodka or he's doing something incredibly unhealthy and he says something to the effect of, that's tomorrow Homer's problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, funnily enough, I had a, a governor that used to say to us after our second day shift, so we've got a clear day the next day, he'd say to me, should go out and get drunk tonight, Rick, after work. And I'd be like, oh, no, I've, I've got stuff to do in the morning, mate. I've got to play football. I've got this. And he went, that is tomorrow Rick's problem. Come on. <laughs> Don't be boring, Rick, tonight. Let tomorrow Rick worry about that. And I always used to laugh. And, and that's all I needed to hear. And I'd be like, do you know what? You're right. Let's go out and have some fun. You never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Yes, I do. A really bad hangover and a really bad performance on a football pitch. We spoke earlier about education there is the key. I just want to touch back on that a little bit. We may not be able to answer this, but I think this is what the conversation is about. As much as we can hammer at things, maybe we can pull something out. I very often approach, say, teaching rookies, recruits, firefighting, where there's a lot of things that you can sort of use your experience and the experience of others and remove minds in the minefield for them. You can fast track them towards some things by imparting your mistakes, imparting other people's mistakes, imparting problems that they might come to. But there are many things that you can't help them avoid that they're just going to have to experience on their own and have the experience and learn from it that way. 
I don't know the answer to this, but maybe between the two of us, we can hammer something out where how much of this can we fast track people through and how much in regards to mental health and mental illness and recognizing what's going on and how much is it just literally going to be people experiencing it themselves and then having to get through it? How much can we pave the way for people or is it even possible? I believe it is to a point. Yeah. Here's an example. I've always had an, what I would have classed as an, an understanding of depression because it's something my mum has suffered with her whole life. Now, what I didn't know, I found out in later years, was that it was due to, her depression was due to, a lifelong gambling addiction. Thankfully, she's never really been an affluent person. She's, she's never had much in the way of money, so she's never been able to do significant damage to her life. But she's done damage in the short term in the terms of a cash flow problem. She'd have some money set aside for car maintenance and she needs a car for work. But she'd take the car maintenance money to a games arcade and she'd spend it on the, the fruit machines and obviously come out a loser and feel sick. And then that would trigger a bout of depression because she'd have feelings of shame, of remorse, of guilt, of inadequacy, of weakness, all of these different things. And every now and then she'd turn up at my house and she'd be in floods of tears and she'd be like, I'm really struggling, Rick. And I'd hug her and I'd tell her that I understand and that it's not her fault. I'd try and be supportive. And it's only after my sort of journey through PTSD and depression that I realized that whilst I may have been saying some of the right things, I had absolutely no understanding of what depression feels like. None. But I had enough, of, enough knowledge about depression that I could support my mum the right way. And that's what I think we can do with trainees, with rookies. I think we can give them the knowledge so that they know what signs to look out for, what symptoms can take hold. They may not fully understand any of it until if and when they are suffering with it, but at least they've got some of that base knowledge. They've got some footprints to follow. They've got some breadcrumbs so that they can go, right, yeah, yeah, I remember this from training. They spoke about this. Maybe it's this. It gives them a starting point to start exploring. Kind of like when um, we learn about flashover. You don't know what flashover feels like until you're in one. And if you're in one, you're generally pretty screwed. It gives you enough knowledge for you to be like, I know I don't want to be in one. So I'm going to try and avoid that by looking for the signs and symptoms of a flashover. If one actually happens, then you can go, wow, I actually know what it feels like to be in one. That doesn't stop you from not getting there. Or maybe you then also know the signs of when it's possibly going to be coming or even before those signs start, you know what to do to prevent it from happening altogether. So maybe time after time, you do the thing that prevents it. So in your entire career, you haven't experienced a single flashover because you've done the right things to keep it from happening. Something that I do now, because I am, and I won't lie to you, I'm petrified of PTSD now. I am petrified of ending back in that place because of how depleting it was and how miserable it made me and how much it took from my life, how many years it took from my relationship with my son and all of the other stuff. Any time now where I attend an incident and I think that has got potential, that's got potential to set me back, that's got potential to affect me, I immediately stop drinking, I'll stop going out, and I'll say, right, what I'm going to do is just spend some time with family, spend some time with my girlfriend, spend some time with friends in a non-social arena, and I'm not going to mask anything. So that if I feel bad, it isn't masked by alcohol. I'm going to know that I'm feeling bad and then I can deal with it. Then I can process it. It keeps my mind clear so that kind of like if you're climbing high altitude and they tell you don't take aspirin 
or paracetamol for a headache because it will mask the signs of high altitude sickness. It's exactly the same thing. Either way, whether you mask it or not, that altitude sickness is coming. So best to do it with a clear head so you know when it starts, so you know to start descending straight away rather than mask it in the hope that it's not altitude sickness and it won't set in. And then as soon as you run out of paracetamol, you're absolutely screwed. And PTSD, obviously, and that's happened here where I'm at, where PTSD obviously got the foot in the door, just like presumptive legislation for cancers. PTSD was the mental health issue that sort of got the foot in the door for governments and fire services to awaken to the realization that it was an issue and start to put movement in place to help prevent it. Even more prevalent, I believe, is like anxiety, depression, PTS, just itself PTS, right? That's where it doesn't end up being chronic and long-term. And PTSD also then, like you said, especially once you've experienced it or something severe like that or severe depression or severe anxiety, there's a lot of fear around it, uh, which can have its own problems because people can be afraid of even finding out that they have PTSD or experiencing anxiety or depression, so they'd rather just ignore it. Or I guess people would think the only problem that I need to look out for in my career is PTSD, as opposed to the more common anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues. So do you feel like we are doing a great job of speaking about PTSD, but we also need to temper that with the other tangents to that or other aspects or different mental health issues that people also need to be aware of? I do think it's important to cover all the bases. I mean, let's face it, life is stressful. Normal life, normal everyday life without a job like ours. However, we do have arguably an advantage in some aspects as well because, and I believe this is true, we build up a certain level of tolerance to seeing things. I saw walking down the road the other day, I was with my girlfriend and we saw a guy lying face down in the road, looked like a motorcyclist had been hit. It obviously only just happened. Ambulance there, police there, but the guy's still in the road. He's not on the trolley for the ambulance yet or anything. And I literally looked and was like, oh, that guy's been hit by something. Looks like a motorcyclist. And then carried on. And I literally, until now, haven't thought about it since. It had no impact. Whereas for the, the bystanders that, that were there watching what was happening, that could potentially be a real traumatic thing they've witnessed. That could be something that they, they're going to speak about for the next year. I think we forget that. So whilst we may be more capable of dealing with things, I think that's an immediate process. I don't necessarily know that that's a long-term fix. I don't know that we can look at that and go, well, I won't be affected by that then. Using that, life is stressful just in everyday life as, as an everyday person. Stress, just normal everyday stress for us, could just be daily routines around a fire station. The pressure of being the station cook you get that wrong and you get absolutely hammered by the guys and girls at the station. There are so many different things. And the problem, I think, with the arguably lesser things is that if you go into work and you say, I've been diagnosed with PTSD, everyone will rally around. They'll be like, you need right, you need support, you need this, look after Rick. Rick's trying hard, he's still in work, let's keep him here, let's do this. Everyone's going to fuss and get... But if you go into work and you say, oh, I'm feeling a bit anxious today... No one's going to care. It's seen as, as a nothing thing. And that's where the change needs to come in. That's, that's where conversations need to come in, where the understanding of what starts as a traumatic incident or life stress, you know, back to that triangle of life, as I'll call it, with the work life, home life and financial life. 
that's enough for you to bring problems into work as much as people bring problems home from work. So you need the information, the knowledge there to be able to go, right, I'm stressed at the moment. That's probably going to make me more susceptible to the next level up of stress. And that's probably going to make me more susceptible to deterioration in my mental health to whatever extent it could end up as depression or PTSD or could come out as OCD or Tourette's. All of these things, are they're all in the same ballpark. They're all in the same place. It's a difficult one because at a fire station, we get by by basically being mean to each other. Oh, yeah, under the guise of banter and, and that's fine. But I think we need to be more educated and more aware that if someone comes in and they're saying they feel anxious, just to, to treat it with the potential seriousness it, it could actually have. I guess it's common amongst our service and the culture to recognize large events or, say, a list of critical incidents when we get the training. Here's a list of critical incidents of, say, the top 10 things that you could be looking out for that you may experience that could cause problems down the road. Large events, like I said, like 9-11, Grenfell Tower, war, there's things that are very obvious to people when it's happened. Of course, these people are dealing with X, Y, and Z afterwards. Of course they are. I love what you were saying there, and it makes me think of we also need to be aware of the, the individual as far as ourselves and other people that we don't know how close we are to having something that really needs to be addressed or that's going to tip into something serious and chronic. It's a bit like triage and we're trained. The person that's sitting in the driver's seat that's got a smashed up head and is screaming and wailing, don't worry about them. They're doing all right. The passenger that's in the back that's sitting there silent and staring vacantly, they're the priority. That person's the person that whilst they may look in a much better state, they're the one that's about to crash and, and have a cardiac arrest. Let's look at them first. And it's about being wise enough and educated enough to be able to look at people and say, that person's making a lot of jokes about that incident we attended last week. Like a lot, a lot more than normal. Maybe they're not okay. And maybe all that person needs is a chat and then they'll let a little bit out and they're okay. Yeah, which may be on the surface or looking at it from a group perspective at an, at an individual or at an experience we all had it could be labeled on the spectrum of things as not that bad. That touches back to what you're saying about our level of what's bad and what's not. Whereas you don't know for that individual where they're at or what it was about this specific incident. Maybe that individual themselves doesn't know for their own awareness why that specific event that doesn't make the news for some reason is the thing. In a sense, do you feel like we, we trip people up by labeling things on a scale of critical incident versus... Because we don't know what's critical for you and what's critical for me. I guess that's what I'm trying to drive out here. Everybody's an individual. Every, everybody has a different past. And quite often triggers are things that will relate to our lives in some way. A firefighter attending an incident involving a small child might not trigger that firefighter at all if that firefighter doesn't have children of his own. But if he has a little girl, say, that is the same age as the little girl that's died and they look similar, that could potentially be a huge problem. But to a firefighter standing next to him, he or she might just go, it's just another death. I don't know why you're so affected. And the important thing, I think, is that we need to stop looking for the why. We're always taught in life, everything is a why. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to do that? With my motivational speaking, I, I, the first thing I learned was, what is my why? Why do I want to go and speak to people? What am I hoping to achieve? What do I want them to get from my talks? You need a why. Why is massively important. And one of the only places I've found in my life where it's completely irrelevant is why something has affected you. In the initial, if you're with a counsellor, you uncover the why. Fine. 
then you can can have some understanding. But in terms of if you feel you shouldn't have been affected and you're looking for why you have, don't waste your time. It doesn't matter. What matters is you've been affected. So deal with that. Treat it first. Ultimately, if, if you had um, a catastrophic bleed from an artery in your arm, why you're bleeding is massively irrelevant to the paramedic that turns up. Their first port of call, stop the bleed. Once they've stopped the bleed and they've stabilized you, then they'll look at mechanism of injury. And it's the same with our mental health. Stop looking for the why. It doesn't matter. Let's just focus on how we heal and fix what's wrong. Right. The mentality of take the calls as they come. And whether you're affected or whether you're not, it doesn't matter. If you are, deal with it. If you're not, that's fine. If it comes up later, deal with it. If you're not, if it doesn't, you're fine. Call by call, day by day. I spent a while after the Grenfell Tower fire wondering why I had been so affected when other colleagues that were there with me seemingly weren't at all. It, for me, it was an immediate, an immediate emotional response to the fire. I cried on the day of the fire and I cried pretty much every day after the fire for probably six months. And one of my colleagues was absolutely, like genuinely, absolutely fine. And I struggled with that. Because I go, why am I affected? Why is this affecting me so much? Why am I weaker? Is it because of my childhood? Do I need to be more angry at my stepdad now for being violent when I was a kid? Is Because is, is that now made this problem worse? All of these things. And as I said, the why was the least relevant part. What I needed to do was start to heal. And as time has gone on, that firefighter is now in therapy. That firefighter is now having counseling for Grenfell. It just took longer to hit him. And for some firefighters, I'm sure it's never hit. And to those firefighters, now rather than worry about why it affected me, I'm just thankful for them that it hasn't affected them because it's a real shit place to be. Yeah, and I guess two parts to that. The first being if people went through Grenfell Tower or a similar experience and they weren't affected by it, they must think, well, if I can deal with that, nothing affects me then. And they think they're bulletproof to anything that, again, they put on the spectrum as lesser than that. And what I found is the opposite. What I found is since Grenfell, I'm more affected by smaller things. And I guess the second part is not only then were you dealing with the impact from the incident or how that added on top of everything else that you were dealing with, but now you are also imparting on yourself through your own judgment of yourself and maybe what you thought was the judgment of other people. You're now dealing with a lot of shame and guilt surrounding it. So it makes it even harder to get down to the root of the problem and deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. So I want to touch now on, you mentioned around the station, around the firehouse, the banter, how we are with each other. And you mentioned maybe if someone is, seems off their normal, how we should be, or maybe a little more respectful, be maybe a little more aware. And I think one of the things we struggle with in the service is very much absolutes and binary thinking. So where I'm driving at towards here is what you call vulnerability and strength. And what I've labeled as sort of tough plus love, right? The sweet spot is finding to be the most effective first responder is how do you operate in the balance of the two? But I think people are very quick to go when they hear you say, maybe dial back on the banter. It's like, well, what, everyone's a snowflake? I'm supposed to be trade everyone with kick gloves? So the two binary things are, well, we're either stoic hard asses that never ever address anything emotional, or we're melting snowflakes on the floor and everything is a trigger and we have to treat everybody like they're with bubble wrap. Neither of those are beneficial, right? So the sweet spot, which you know, you're doing a great job of promoting now is vulnerability and strength. So maybe let's try and frame that for people, what we mean by how we can use what is good 
from both ends of that, having to firefighter up and do hard things when they're necessary and maybe not tie as much into your emotions when it's needed, and also being able to go to the other end of things and really deal with your emotions and soften up when you need to, and how sort of operating around that middle is the most beneficial way for us to be. The first thing I'd say on, on this is there is a key word that underpins that middle ground beautifully, and it's kindness. And if you act in a way that is kind, you never miss the mark, literally never. You can have banter to someone's face and you can slag them off for something, you know, poke fun at them for not dealing with an incident very well. Or, you know, if they come in and say, oh, I'm really struggling today, that incident last night has bothered me. You can take the mic, you can take the pit, but then go and find them afterwards when they're on their own, when they're likely to open up and just say, look, banter aside, just checking in. Are you actually okay? Or do you need some support? That's not being a snowflake. That's being human. It's being kind. Even snowflakes need kindness. And stoic hard asses need kindness. We all need a bit of that in our lives. If anyone's not sure of the mark, not really sure of how to find that middle ground, just think, what is kind? Is why they're struggling important or is it important that they're struggling? If it's important to you that they're struggling, then help them. Be kind. If it's not important, then leave them alone. But don't be unkind. It's a simple thing. In terms of the strength in vulnerability, when I started talking about this initially, it was only based on my experiences going through the early stages of opening up about my struggling, my mental health. And it was a discovery that I took me by surprise, to be honest. I, I wrote a, a poem after the Grenfell Tower fire that ended up going sort of mildly viral on Twitter. And then I was contacted by this film director and he said, I want to make this into a short film, which I sort of went along and did and, and it did really well. We ended up going to a film festival. It was nominated for an award at a, a national film festival, international film festival, actually. It was an amazing journey. But before we got to that part, the fire brigade stumbled over this poem and I was contacted by the, the, the comms department at the LFB, and they said, can we print this in Shout magazine? We'll give you credit. No. No, you cannot. <laughs> no, thank you. I do not want every firefighter in London knowing that Rick, the former light heavyweight champion, boxing champion of the London Fire Brigade, is now writing poetry. No, thank you very much. <laughs> so I, I sort of spoke to them about it, and I went away, and I said, look, give me a couple of days. My immediate reaction was no. And then I thought, do you know what? Why the fuck not? Why not? Let them print it. What's the worst that can happen? And I was expecting loads of abuse. And there was a sadistic part of me that thought that would be quite funny. Loads of people getting all angry and like, whoa, what's who Rick think he is right? That sort of toxic masculinity thing that exists in the service. And in actual fact, I got hardly any contact from anybody apart from a handful of firefighters that emailed me privately to tell me which parts of the poem they resonated with and to say thanks for writing it. And that was the first time I realized that in making yourself vulnerable, it doesn't make you weak. What those people saw in me was strength because I'm willing to make myself weak and still retain and remain who I am as a, as a man, as a human being. And it made me realize that giving somebody everything they need to attack you isn't making you weak. It's giving them the opportunity to be weak. You actually look very strong. You look confident. I'm going to give you everything you need to tear me down. And I'm not worried about it because I am a strong human being. 
and you can't hurt me. There's huge strength in that. And if anyone, as I said, if anyone does attack you using that information, it's so dismissible. Well, of course you've said that. I told you it. I gave that to you. And that's the best you can come up with. The best you can come up with is what I gave you. Pathetic. Move on. It gives you huge strength. Yeah, it really is that people don't understand how you can be hard and tough, strong and soft. It doesn't negate the strength at all. It's, the strength never leaves. It's not like you're it's a light switch or either strong or you're weak. It's like there's you are strong, you're always strong. It's just how you're communicating something. And then on the other end of the spectrum, as something that's seen as weak and soft, right? People don't understand how someone that they see as weak and soft and labeled as weak and soft can be ever be tough or strong. It's really the semantics and the labeling of all of this. I think the spectrum mentality, this binary pendulum swing, I think that's what messes everything up. People have a hard time understanding that you can be both simultaneously at all times. I tell you what, being me, the advantages of being me in terms of who I've developed into as a human being are that I can be in a boxing ring and I can hold my own. I can win a fight. I can also sit down with a woman and talk to her about a day and actually give her some sort of decent conversation or a male colleague who's having some sort of breakdown or, or a mental health problem or a bad day. I can relate. I can be insightful. I can connect with these people. What it means is I can be popular in many different areas of my life. How has that ever been a bad thing? And I'm not having to do it by camouflaging or by pretending I'm someone I'm not. Everybody knows that I used to box. Everybody knows that I write poems. And no one can hurt me. Because if I can't beat you up, I'll immortalize you in poetry. <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> I'll, use my, I'll use my no, fists or my words, either one, right? That's it, yeah. yeah. I've, got, I've got the option of both. And the thing is, the truth is that we all have the option of many, many different facets. Again, especially as men, like we should be railroaded into being a certain type of man to do a certain type of job. No, we don't. Look, we are multifaceted people. We have so many talents and skill sets within the emergency services. There's always someone on the back of a fire truck when you get to an incident, if there's a flooding or this has gone or an electrical problem, there's always someone there who's like, oh yeah, I'm a sparky, I, I can sort the electrics out, or I'm a plumber, I can do this, or I used to be a mechanic, I'll have a look at that. We are multifaceted people by nature. And the reason we all do our jobs is because we want to help people. So why not apply that into our normal everyday lives? It's a very comfort zone thing, though, to sort of put yourself in a very small box and say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm sticking with. I'm not moving outside of this. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that as long as you don't allow anybody else that's not doing it to be a target of toxicity. If you want to box yourself away and be one dimensional and non-dynamic, great, that's fine. But then don't attack people that aren't. Don't attack people that are choosing to, to do something else because no one's attacking you. I've said often surrounding the stigma of mental illness that the only reason that stigma exists is because people are assholes. If people didn't judge people for what they were experiencing, there would be no stigma. People that speak about, I'm sure you've heard this before when people talk to you, like you're very courageous, you're very brave. The only reason it's courageous and brave of you to do what you're doing is because of the existence of people that say that you shouldn't do it. If that didn't exist, it wouldn't be a brave thing to do. It would just be normal if everybody saw a fire and immediately ran towards it we'd be there in our uniforms going well we're just the lucky ones that are getting paid right <laughs> we wouldn't be seen as any better than anybody else any braver than anybody else any crazier than anybody else the societal standards have a lot to answer for both good and bad 
speaking about what we've gone through, not everyone's path through or result of what they've gone through is going to look like what you have done or what I have done in my way. Some of us are more verbal or vocal or outspoken about, and that helps, that's beneficial to us. And maybe it's not as beneficial to others. Do you think people will hold themselves back or see it as a barrier if that's not their way of inspiring themselves to get through what they're getting through or to get through what they're getting through and not seeing other avenues like somatic therapy or ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? There's a lot of options to get through what you're getting through as opposed to sitting and talking to somebody or to getting up on stage and speaking about it. So maybe two parts. Maybe just tell me how you found that this process for you was healing for you and how it continues to be healing for you. And maybe what your view on other avenues for people to go through the same experience, what benefits you see in those? There's a couple of things in there, I suppose. One of them is the exposure therapy. Recounting that night as many times as I have now has lessened its impact on me just by talking about it. By that, I don't mean as in the good that comes to me from talking. I just mean the fact that I'm saying the words. I used to hear the word Grenfell and I'd have a, a physiological reaction to it. Now, it has no effect on me at all. I've said it so many times. I've heard it so many times. Exposure therapy is brilliant. It's, for some people, maybe too painful a route. And arguably for me at times, probably too painful a route. I was doing talks probably way before I should have been. And talking about it maybe way before I should have been because I, I was talking about things that telling people that I'm healing and I'm great when I was in the midst of absolute turmoil. So it was, I guess, at times arguably dishonest, but for altruistic reasons. So there's that side of it to start with. And the other side of it is hearing back from people, getting feedback from people about parts of what I've said that resonated with them, how it's helped them. I keep screenshots when people send me messages and I stick them all in a folder on my phone so that if I'm having a bad day and I'm questioning why am I doing this, why am I putting myself through this, why am I driving halfway across the country today to go and talk to a room full of people that don't know me, I've got no value to them, self-worth issues creeping in, I just open that folder up and I read back through some of the amazingly beautiful messages I've received off service people, men and women, all over the, the, and that's from all over the world. I've had messages of people from the States, from Canada, from Australia, from the Middle East, from Southeast Asia. I've had messages from people all over the world. We're not talking millions of messages, a good hundred. And that's more than enough for me. And that reminds me that A, putting myself through this is bringing value to somebody somewhere. So therefore it's worth it. And B, bringing that value to somebody somewhere means that the pain that I was caused and the suffering that I went through hasn't been for no reason. There's some good to come out of it. And if all that is, is someone in Australia not killing themselves on a crappy Tuesday because they've heard a podcast that I spoke on, amazing, it's worth it. So that's that part. The other part in terms of alternative therapies, again, I think that comes down to education. I think... It comes down to, A, being aware of what therapies are out there. For instance, over here in the UK now, we've got a big drive on therapy through the arts. Someone might be an awful speaker. They might not be able to find the right words, but they can paint you how they're feeling. And I know there'd be probably a lot of people out there rolling their eyes going, I'll leave it out and painting your feelings. But 
well, every artist paints their feelings. Every painting that's ever been created was made with feelings. And some of those are, are worth millions and millions of pounds. So if you can heal your mind by painting the pain that you're in, do it. That's all poetry is, is painting with words. I describe how I'm feeling because I can, but I can't paint. If I could paint, maybe I would have been doing that. Maybe I'd have painted a beautiful picture of the misery that I was in at the time. So I think you need to be educated enough to know what is out there and what's available. And then I think you need to be brave enough to try. I always say that if you try something, say therapy through the art, say someone said to me, go and do a, go and do a day's painting. It's 50 quid. You've got to pay it. You don't know if it's going to help. All right, I'll go away and try. I spent 50 pounds trying that. I found it no use to me whatsoever. Brilliant. It's cost me 50 pounds to chalk one off. That one isn't the one for me. Now my list of finding the one that will work is smaller. That's valuable. That's been worth it. You're narrowing it down to find out what's going to work for you. Exactly. Yeah. So try everything. Yeah. Maybe the three words that this boils down to that holds us back from acknowledging what's going on with us and also holds us back from maybe trying things that are beneficial is, but not me. Well, I see that happens to other people, but not me. I see that painting helps you, but not me. I think that's the fear of discovering what helps you because once you've found what can help you, it means you've got to do it. And I can speak from experience when I say that opening that can of worms is hard. I was seven hours of therapy in and I was still unboxing stuff that, I, that had nothing to do with Grenfell. I was feeling very overwhelmed, like I am drowning in pain and misery and we haven't even got to Grenfell yet. I was petrified. Where is this going to lead me? You know, how is this going to help? Mm-hmm. It is a scary thing to do. You have to be brave to be vulnerable and to open yourself up. But it is the only way you can heal. I'm sure you're going to agree based on what you're saying there is that if in that dark moment you could feel viscerally and fully how you were going to feel now after all of it, it would make it so much easier and you would have gone so much harder towards that. But maybe it's the risk or the barrier is that you can't impart to somebody how much better they're going to feel in their life once they go through the hard thing. You don't know how good fit is going to feel until you're fit. So when you're trying to get fit, it all just sucks. But if you knew how good it was going to feel, and I could give that to you for 15 seconds, you're like, oh my God. And then you're back to the hard part. You're like, doesn't matter. I know where I'm going. That's why I think it's so valuable that people like you and I are having these conversations because we can't prove the success of talking or painting or we can only prove it's worked for us. But what we can do is prove that it's worked for us. And that gives people hope. That means that somebody who otherwise wouldn't try it might have a conversation with me and say, yeah, but that might not work for me. And I can say, well, it worked for me. So it might not work for you, but maybe one of the others will. But I I am living proof that it's worked for me. So don't be a pessimist. Try it. Even just like a successful business owner, it's easy for people to say, well, let's see, it was easy for you. Look where you are now. It's, It's easy for you to say. And they don't know the deep, dark, hard journey. work that way. Yeah, they don't know the journey. And you, you can't impart that to people about how much you suffered. They're not watching the countless hours of what it took that person to get where they are today. But it seems kind of glib, though. And people can, I'm just saying people can dismiss it very easily because they want to dismiss it and they don't want to, they don't want to go to, on the journey themselves. So they're looking for reasons. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the sad truth about that and the problem with that is that there is only so much 
somebody else can do. The phrase I always come back to is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. We can talk about our journeys. We can talk about mental health. We can suggest ways that might help somebody and we can prove to them that it's worked for us. But if they are adamant, it's all nonsense and it isn't going to work, then they're going to have to find their own path there. And there are only so many people that that you can help and there are only so many people we can save. Yeah, I've flipped that to you can lead people to knowledge, but you can't make them think. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a great spot for us to, to jump into next before we finish up is for people that are out there helping for peer supporters, for motivational speakers, for instructors, for them to realize that there is only so much that they can do. They are limited. They have a limited exposure to that person. That person has many facets to their life. They have family, they have friends, they have themselves, they have activity, inner circles. They've, there's a lot of people that are in touch with that person in their life. We're one small piece. So to not lay all the weight on us as someone that you perceive yourself as a helper, as it's all on you to help these people and to save them. We're one small piece. So maybe for me, the piece, P-E-A-C-E, in that is all I know is I'm going to do everything I can in my small corner of your life to help add to that and hopefully it makes a difference but i don't have to weigh the weight of that so if and when unfortunately tragically if you if someone has taken their life if we want to take this to the extreme that it wasn't on me for not doing everything i could because i did do everything i could it was other things in their life that that brought them to that point just to emphasize that point i went through a phase of trying to help everybody that contacted me people would open up to me and rather than me be a listening ear and empathize and signpost them to organizations that are set up to help in a professional capacity. What I would do was I would take them on as my patient. Contact me anytime. I ended up going through phases where I'd be on the phone to a drunk man at three o'clock in the morning that I've never met with him crying down the phone saying he wanted to kill himself. And I'd be desperate to help him. And maybe I did. Maybe I was enough that because well, I know that he, he never did that. I know that he's alive. So you know, maybe those chats helped. But without sounding callous, that is not my job. In the same way that at an incident, we do our job and then we hand the person to the ambulance or to the paramedics. We don't transport them to hospital, put IVs in ourselves, do all of that. That's not our job. That's somebody else's job. And like you said, we do our bit the best we can and then we pass them on to the people that can help and what i learned is that the power there is signposting and again honesty i will say to people if they contact me now i wondered if you've got time for a chat next week blah blah blah. if i haven't i will say i'm really sorry i haven't really sorry i would love to but i just don't but here is a list of 10 organizations that will be able to listen to you and will be able to help if they don't want to phone a stranger at an organization, why are they phoning a stranger that's not? They will make that call. They've already reached out. I used to be worried that they won't make the call and then it'll be on me if they kill themselves or they hurt themselves. They've phoned a stranger. That's the hard part. They've just phoned the wrong stranger. So we signpost. We say, here's the list of the, the places you need to go to. And then they can take that off and they can go and do that. And then we cannot burden ourselves and weigh ourselves down with everybody else's stuff because we're fighting to survive some days ourselves. 
Yeah, and you wouldn't be walking the talk. You actually, ironically, wouldn't be someone that someone would want to go to for help if you didn't walk the talk. If you didn't have self-care, self-awareness, self-love, if you weren't able to recognize in that moment, I would love to be able to give you my all my A-game, but I'm struggling in today right now. I'm in my own deep, dark place, so I can't. Like That's the most honest and authentic and genuine thing you can, which actually makes you someone that is there that's good to help people, and they can actually still learn from that, from experiencing that from you. It's not callous, because sure, maybe you can balance two, three, four people. Could you help 20? Can you help 50? Can you help 100? It would encompass your entire life. So we really do need to divide this work amongst as many people as possible to help as many people as possible. We can't all take it on ourselves. There is an, an element of that as well, that when you turn around to someone and you say, sorry, I can't help, I'm struggling, or, or even if you're not struggling, even if you're saying, I'm sorry, I can't help, because I'm doing okay and I don't want to be struggling. And if I, if I take this on, it might result in me struggling. Not only are you being honest with that person, which will be appreciated, not only do you then signpost to a, an organization that can help, which will be appreciated, but you also give them the knowledge that a person they've reached out to, that they see as successful, that they see as a survivor, someone who's able to fight, even that person can have days when they're struggling. Even that person can have days when they've lost a bit of hope and that in a weird miserable sort of way gives them some peace as well because they go right thank god for that it's not just me even the person that i think is amazing and, and successful and doing okay in life even that person's telling me that they're having a bad day thank god for that and sometimes knowing someone else is as miserable as you is all you need to fight harder. And really the hope is that, well, I can too get to the place where even though I'm still going to continue to struggle in life, I will build up a resilience and a resistance or a way of self-caring that I'll still be able to do great things in life for myself and other people despite the problems. But the problems aren't going to stop. I'm just going to be better at dealing with them. And just on that note, as we've used this word a few times, something I always include in my, uh, my talks when I do these is one of the most powerful little stories that I, I ever heard. And it's about, it's about hope. Apparently, it is a true story. There was a um, Harvard graduate, a Dr. Richter, I believe his name was, back in the 50s. And he conducted experiments with rats in buckets. And what he did was put a rat in a bucket of water and time the rat to see how long it would swim for before it started to sink, before it gives up. The first time he did it, he timed the rat, and it was like 15 minutes that the rat swam for. So he took the rat out of the bucket as it started to sink put it back in its cage, dried it off, fed it, watered it, let it recover, gave it sufficient time. Put the same rat back in the same bucket of water, and the second time around, that same rat in the same water swam for 60 hours. And he concluded that what the rat now had was hope, that if it continued to swim, it would be saved by that same hand again. That hope made the difference of 59 hours and 45 minutes of swimming. It's incredible. And when you realize that, and then you realize that we all have the ability to pass this hope on to people, and that's not always by succeeding. Sometimes we pass hope on by failing and then talking about it. We can pass hope on by going, I tried to do this and I failed, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to try again. That then becomes an inspiration. If someone climbs a mountain and does it first time round, we can look at that achievement and we can go, oh, that's great. But if someone fails 50 times, and goes back and completes it on the 51st, that person's now an inspiration. What we're actually celebrating is their ability to fail and ultimately succeed, which is why there's nothing wrong with the failure part of our stories, which is why I talk about the times 
when I've smacked my son so hard he wet himself. I'm not proud of it. I don't want to talk about those things. They're emotionally damaging for me. God knows it was emotionally damaging for my son. But it's important that he knows and everybody else knows that it's okay if you fail even to that extent. There is still a recovery. Again, I'm living proof that that recovery can take place. I have a great relationship with my son now. It has taken loads and loads of work, but I got there. And if I said I had PTSD, went for counseling 15 sessions, and now I'm great. Okay, brilliant, successful. It's not much of a story. But when you include all of the failures along the way, all of the times I ended up in strangers' flats taking drugs along the way and missing appointments and all of the things that went wrong in my life absolutely falling apart, and I still found the strength to stand up and take another step forwards and try and find my, my way back onto my journey to recovery. That then gives people hope because when they're having their worst day, they know that someone else has been there before them and they know that that person has survived and it means that they can. Yeah, it's almost like when you're telling people if they're trying to get on the job and you're like, well, just keep trying and it seems very glib. <laughs> and then they do get on, they're like, oh, that person was right, right? Or if, if you just keep trying, it will get better. It's easy to say. But people say, well, it's easy to say because you're on the other side. But then when they do try and they get better, like, oh, okay, they're right. Again, getting back to what you're saying is like retrospect and hindsight, the experience of what the change is, is that's when the learning, that's when the realization, that's when the aha comes to. So I maintain that the difference is hope. When you say to someone, keep trying, it will get better, keep working hard, it will get better. What they need isn't the knowledge that that is true because you can't ever give them that. What they need is the hope. They need the belief that that could be true. And then they'll commit. And also knowing that their experience may be shorter, longer, not as difficult, way more difficult. We really don't know what their experience versus our experience is going to be. It's going to be different. But the commonality between all people is that you have the opportunity to try and go through it. Something that was said to me by somebody once was, it's not your fault if you get fucked up, but it is your fault if you stay fucked up. <laughs> we all have options. Even if the options you've got in front of you are shocking. One of them will be less shocking. So pick that, make the right choices because we all have them. And it is our fault. Ultimately, if we recognize that we are in a bad spot, we recognize that we're not doing well and we choose to do nothing about it, that is on us. That is no, nobody else's fault. We cannot blame other people for that. Yeah, and how do you expect to become or realize that you're strong when you, you're just expecting other people to do it all for you? Exactly. It turns into the back, we'll come full circle back to the blame game where you're looking for the thing to blame and the last thing you look at is yourself. Right. So it's acknowledging that your accountability for yourself is a strong piece of the path towards healing. Which again comes back to the strength in vulnerability or the, um, what was your one, sorry? The tough plus love. Tough plus love. Yeah. yeah. You've, got, you've got to do that with yourself. You've got to make yourself vulnerable. Be honest enough about your being honest enough about your failings and your shortcomings, that makes you vulnerable. It all ties in seamlessly. If you put it all together, it all ties in seamlessly. And if you, you lose one of them or you miss one of them, the journey becomes much harder. With mental health, with poor mental health, no matter what it is, whether it's PTSD, anxiety, depression, OCD, it doesn't matter, whatever it is, when you make that decision that you are going to either fight or give up, and you make the decision to fight, you're at war. Fight. Fight with everything. Do everything you can to get better. Because if you do it half-assed, 
you lose round after round after round and the fight seems very, very long. Go for the first round knockout. Do everything you need to do to get better. I think that's a beautiful place to finish off on. I just want to say I really, I'm really glad you've come through what you've come through and you are where you are and I'm really grateful for the work you do and what you continue to do, how much you're trying to help other people. It's, it's honorable, it's admirable and I appreciate it and I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. And maybe you can just finish off by letting people know where they can find you and how they can reach you and dive deeper into the content to find out more about your journey. Yeah, I've got a website, www.justrick.co.uk. And you can find me on Instagram at justrick999. On my website, you'll find some other interviews I've done, some content, my film, The Firefighter. In fact, you can also watch that film online. If you Google Ricky Nuttall, The Firefighter, it will come up with the Vivo link to the short film it's only three minutes long but do try and watch it the views help raise awareness about the Grenfell Tower fire and the victims fight for justice the film doesn't make any money doesn't make me any money doesn't make anybody any money it's not about that it's about going there and raising that awareness and spreading and sharing the content well I'm grateful for your time today as well and I'm glad we finally got to sit and see each other and chat and, and hopefully we can stay connected and touch base now and then yeah 100% Scott thanks very much mate it's been a great interview